John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. Jesus is the speaker in the text. And he says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. The promise of our Lord and Savior as he was about to ascend to the Father, this of course occurs in that setting where he is trying to prepare the disciples for his crucifixion and then his resurrection and eventually his ascension so that at the appointed hour he could come again. And though he had spent some time with this passage reminding them of what was about to take place, they didn't comprehend all of that and found themselves in despair until the assurance came of the resurrection. And from that point on, they were in a more positive frame of mind as they were commissioned to take the gospel of Christ. He did not indicate how soon he would return. And of course, there was anticipation that it would be just a short while and then he would come back and receive them unto himself that where he is, they might be also. But in the mind of God, he looked down across the course of time before the plan was ever inaugurated and knew you and I and knew that we would be in this service this morning and knew that we would be in anticipation of that return. And so he has given us in his word some guidelines by which we can at least understand our purpose until he comes again. We've titled this series that we are involved in, Understanding Current Events in the Light of Bible Prophecy. And certainly as we look at the current events each week, we are reminded of the signs of his coming and no doubt raise some question, how much longer? When will it be? How soon can we count on it? But he's not given us that time nor that date. He's given us some circumstances and conditions, but John who who penned this document that our Lord spoke is the one that said as he wrote his epistle of 1 John, we're living in the end times. So now we are almost 2,000 years beyond that time that he declared as the end times because the Bible doesn't reveal how long these end times are. Nor can we really compare it to evaluate and just perhaps the anticipation of it by the various periods of time in the past. For in our 
study of dispensations, we have seen that some periods are short and others are quite lengthy. And so we just must hear his message of encouragement concerning the anticipation of his return. But more vital to us in our day is that we be about the business that he has instructed us to be about. This week, there have been current events that deal with uh, the U.S. economy. Not only the U.S. economy, but world economy. And certainly that's one of the themes concerning end times and Bible prophecy it relates to economy. I don't know if you tuned in to some of the report of the World Economic Forum that met this last week, the week before, but uh, they are soundly talking about uh, cutting down on our privacy and controlling the economic situation, not on the national basis, but this was the World Economic Forum that was meeting but they bear the same semblance in their speeches that they give about uh, being able to track every human being on the earth and along with that to control the circumstances and situations by which they can buy and sell. And we're certainly moving very swiftly now in that direction. I can remember as a kid reading about some of those things and thinking how could they, how could the people ever come to a point where they would accept that? Well, I have no more query about that. I ask why and uh, I have a few uh, adjectives uh, that I might use to describe them, but uh, it's certainly seeable in our environment today. The new monkeypox, which has been around for a long time, but now is one of the current events this last week that is gearing up, and I think we're probably going to see uh, more of that in the scare tactics uh, that relate to it. And then some of our reports by our federal government have begun to release some information about the little green men that might be infiltrating us from outer space. And uh, we have seen a couple of reports released and acknowledgement, yeah, there's some things out there that we don't understand that cannot be replicated by any of the systems that we are familiar with or any of the techniques that we are familiar with. Um, for what it's worth, and I know that's my opinion, it's not worth a great deal, but I have thought for years that some of this phenomena is related to angels, fallen angels, and certainly the angelic conflict is the key to the timetable that God is working on and the things that He is, he is about to reveal uh, even in a greater way. But uh, angels' bodies are translucent light, and we know that they can move at a speed that is unimaginable where they can be in the throne room of God one day and then any split second later be here upon the earth. And um, so I, I don't fear 
an attack from the aliens because I think the aliens are fallen angels and I know the battle plan that God has described for that. You can come up with your own theories for that. I can't give you a chapter and verse. The book is Troy, but I can't give you any chapter and verse as to how that relates. But uh, we've seen more uh, acknowledgement by our government and world governments that these things are unexplainable to them. The challenges in the abortion issue have certainly dominated our current events lately, and uh, I guess we ain't seen nothing yet as to where it's that battle is headed. The the establishment of a truth czar, that's been put on hold. You'll notice it hadn't been eliminated, but it's been put on hold, at least in the public arena, uh, right now, uh, continuing uh, to develop that control over society and those of us that live in it. Uh, Canada has their self-assisted suicide uh, approved, and they are moving even further in that direction. So no longer does it have to be a terminal illness, but if a person just chi- just tired of living and wants out, then he can get government-assisted suicide uh, in Canada. That's not very far from our location uh, this morning, and certainly we're seeing an accelerated movement on the world scene of that sort of control and uh, attempts on the part of government. The development of the woke agenda continues this last week in our news to dominate uh, aspects of that, and like so many things, it's become more covert than they, they exposed it and it became very uh, visible for a while. And now we see it moving more in the background where they deny such a thing. All they do have done is change the name of the, the process and uh, the educational or de-educational aspect that we've seen in it. The sexual revolution continues where there is a dominance now of a small minority in our nation and of course that's taken place on the world scene as well and so as we look at the current events uh, we have to recognize and we have to acknowledge uh, that these truly are end times as the Bible describes them and as the stage is being set forth And we're seeing today a lot of jockeying among people to be some of the key stars in that final drama that's going to play out here upon the earth. God has revealed some of the aspects and conditions, but he has not given us a date as to when the rapture will occur. But we conclude by simply observing the evidence that is around us that the curtain call is about to be sounded. And in the sounding of that curtain call, we have identified two stages in which Bible prophecy is going to be played out. We have identified a stage in heaven and then a stage here upon the earth. 
Certainly the stage in heaven has been prepped for the, for the arrival of the church age believers. The prophecies uh, which were given that revealed the events of the church age show that we are truly in the last stage of that church age. The period being divided into seven distinct periods of time and we cannot watch the news or or follow any kind of news reporting without acknowledging that we are in the Laodicean period of the church age. We find Jesus, when he left after his resurrection, made that statement of our text this morning, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And then he revealed to the Apostle John, while John was on the Isle of Patmos in prison exile, God revealed to him seven periods of time that the church would function here upon the earth as the representative of Christ, actually as the body of Christ here upon the earth. And in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, he details seven distinct periods that the church would go through in their representation of Christ and in functioning as the body of Christ. The churches that are identified in the seven letters are identified because They represent the characteristics that were present at that time in those churches, but they represent a prophetic view of that which is going to occur in these seven distinct periods known as the church age. And uh, the, the churches that are identified, you remember, form a geographical circle on the map. If you were to place those churches on a map, you will see that they move in a geographical service, a circle beginning with Ephesus and uh, uh, then following that pattern all the way around to coming back to the south to Laodicea. And it wasn't, that that was a literary style that has been used in the ancient writings uh, to describe the the completion of a whole or a panoramic view of the total that would occur. But the letters are even more descriptive than that because the names of the churches represent also the significant passage from that first experience of the church upon the earth and its relationship with Christ until the final time when Christ will come and call the church up out of the earth. Beginning at Ephesus, the word means desired one, and the admonition to the church is that they had moved away from their honeymoon attitude with Christ and had become loveless. And so we find that experience being from about 30 A.D. at the beginning of the church age and ending around 160 A.D., the loveless church, Ephesus meaning the desired one, and the complaint is you have lost your first love. And then moving north to Smyrna, and the word, remember, is the name of a resin 
that was put into vats and crushed in order to extract the oil that formed the very costly and very desired fragrance of myrrh. One of the gifts that was brought to the Christ child was an offering of myrrh. It is only, that fragrance is only released as a result of crushing and it represents the church. Under ten Roman emperors and the heel of those emperors trying to stamp out Christianity and of course it had the opposite effect. All it did was to advance the cause because it seems like we don't do much uh, until that right is threatened and then there is uh, a commitment to that. And so they moved from that, <clears throat> having lost the fervency uh, in the first century, now they, under persecution, moved to produce the sweet aroma of dedication and service and zeal and martyrdom and sacrifice. And that period lasted from 160 to 312. We can be pretty dogmatic about the dates here because it begins under and is under 10 Roman emperors and the 11th Roman emperor was Constantine. And instead of persecuting Christians, he embraced Christianity and that was had a more uh, disastrous effect upon the church and its its ministry, its doctrine, than the persecution did. In 312 A.D., Constantine married the church to his Roman government, and uh, that's represented by the church at Pergamos. The word means an illicit marriage. The church is to be the bride of Christ, and there, in an illicit marriage, the church becomes wed to the Roman government. From 160 A.D. to 312 A.D., the persecution, but then that persecution ceased, and in the union between the Roman government and the church from 312 to 600 A.D., there was a tremendous decline in the doctrinal uh, integrity of the church and in the doctrinal message that the church was portraying. So that the... The word Pergamos means illicit marriage. And when we move to Thyatira uh, in around 600 A.D., and the word Thyatira means a continual sacrifice. It was no longer assumed that grace was sufficient for all of our need, but that grace needed an assist. And we moved away, the church moved away from the doctrine of grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone, to instituting various systems of penance and of works and uh, of sacrifice. They didn't go back to animal sacrifice, but developed a sacrificial system once again in a continual system and program of works instead of the grace plan that God had set. And then that eventually uh, led to the church of Sardis. The word Sardis meaning a called out remnant and because of the departure so far away from the word of God, there was a reformation that occurred, a rebellion that occurred within the church to go back to the simple doctrine of by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we had the reformation period. 
beginning about 1517. So the Thyatira situation uh, went till that rebellion from 600 A.D. to 1517 A.D. And then we moved to the Church of the Reformation from 1517 till around 1750. And we mark it at 1750 because we move into the characteristics within the church in 1750. We moved into the great awakenings and the spiritual renewal and the missionary enterprise and worldwide evangelism programs that came out as a result of the Reformation and getting back to the Word of God and beginning to hold to true sound doctrine that led to spiritual awakenings around the world. And we have the Philadelphian church. The word means brotherly love as that love was manifest in action through the church. But about 1950, the church moved out of that spiritual awakening back into a system of compromise and convenience uh, where humanism uh, and humanity replaced uh, the divine uh, concept of God and the divine plan of God as the human, uh, human manifesto was adopted by the World Council of Churches as its mission statement. And if you read through there, and you can go on the Internet and, and um, get access to the human manifesto and uh, see the compromises that were made there, and then that has been added to through uh, the years uh, with uh, uh, various conferences as the church has moved further and further away from the focus upon the divine message as they have moved more into the humanistic and the humanism uh, aspect of life. We, uh, we cannot look at society today and truthfully deny that we're in the Laodicean period. That's clear. Now, as to how long we are in the Laodicean period before Christ comes and takes the church out is not given to us. We're simply warned to be alert and to look for our redemption draws nigh, but we are not given any kind of dating on that. But about 1950, we see a move into the Laodicean period. And the Laodicean, that word means governed by the people. And the word of God is being replaced by opinion and human uh, philosophy uh, once again. And we have made the circle completely around from Ephesus that started out in a honeymoon relationship with Christ and then by the end of that century had had waned from that and become uh, the loveless church. And then we've moved the complete circle back around to the fiery evangelism and mission enterprise that we saw uh, during that period of the Philadelphian age. But now we have slipped back around to that complacent and humanistic, more damaging uh, than, than even... Uh, any of the other periods is this compromise that we see in the church today. The Lusian movement is a movement that began about, uh, about 
1974 was the first conference. And it began on what seemed to be a good and honest note. As a matter of fact, Billy, Billy Graham and the Billy Graham uh, organization is the one that promoted it. Uh, it was to be a focus on uh, revitalizing evangelism and dedicated not on doctrine, but evangelism. But you can't have evangelism without doctrine. And depending on your view of evangelism, then we'll be your view concerning the rest of the Word of God. And through the conferences that they have held, they have moved further and further into a focus upon uh, a social gospel and the humanity aspect and the human needs that we have. Now, if you look at their covenant, and that's accessible to you online, it was too extensive for me to print out and, and give to you. But if you look at their covenant, you'll find that it starts out on a solid basis by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But then, and, and that conjunction leads then to a total focus upon ministering to the social needs and the societal needs and adjusting our teaching and our preaching to the societal needs as based on the Laodicean humanistic view rather than the Word of God. And so even the evangelical churches have moved away from that central focus in their mission statement of uh, salvation and then living out the Christian life to the point that our seminaries now are saying, don't worry about the language, don't worry about teaching the Word. People are not receptive to that. You need to communicate the Bible story to them orally and then from that you are able to adjust because you're not reading it from the Word, you're you're proclaiming it uh, orally, you can adjust it to fit the culture of the people. And certainly they have been successful in that. At the beginning of this series, we indicated that our first examination was going to be that stage that is set in heaven. And what is going to play out in that drama that begins with the rising of the curtain at the rapture of the church when we go to be with Christ. And we were going to focus on that aspect of Bible prophecy. And then when we had worked through that, then we would shift gears and we would look at the stage that is set here upon the earth and uh, the things that are going to occur on that stage while we are in heaven. And so I want to spend the day kind of summarizing where we have been as we have looked at the stage in heaven and what is going uh, to be playing out there and our role and our involvement in that. And then next week we're going to shift gears and move our view back down to the earth and that more traditional aspect that people are excited about studying Bible prophecy, about trying to identify the 666 and some of those aspects. Uh, I probably will disappoint you in some of those areas, but that we're going to look at that and see how that plays out because that ought to serve as a motivating factor 
for us as well. Until the rapture, the church has a work to do. Until the rapture, we are identified as sojourners. That is, foreigners, you probably could recite this with me, I'll not ask you to, but a sojourner is a foreigner, not living in his own country, but living alongside the locals to do business for his king. If we, if the church today had a grasp of that, and every day as we went about our activities, we envisioned that we were truly sojourners here and that our reason for being here was to do business for our king, we'd have to make some adjustments in our attitude as well as our activities as we went about it. In our study, we have seen that we are to function as members of the body of Christ, that we are to function as ambassadors for Christ, that is, persons who represent a king in the court of another. We have seen that we are to be stewards, that is, persons that have been appointed to manage the estate of another. We have seen that we are described as servants, persons committed to serving others, that we are described as bond slaves, persons who have surrendered their own agenda, their own free will, in order to live out the service to their owner. We have seen that we are husbandmen, that is, co-laborers, field workers, working together with God in gathering the harvest and proclaiming the message. Our specific and individual function we have seen is dictated by our gifting. And our gifting is identified by our personal characteristics, our tendencies, our abilities, our interests, and our desires. And we are to function with at least one of the nine gifts that are operative through the church age that we have examined. The gift of administration, the gift of teaching, the gift of exhortation, the gift of service, the gift of helps, the gift of word of knowledge, the gift of word of wisdom, the gift of mercy, or the gift of giving. And we have at least one of those, probably a combination of those gifts, that dictate what our function is as sojourners living alongside the locals. Our specific function then is identified by our gifting and that relates to what we're to be doing each day. So we are to function in body life with other believers. Although we have our individual a specific role in ministry and that's what we'll be accountable for, we're not alone. We have uh, members of the body that function with us and and work. we work together to carry out the master plan that God has set forth. 
And that plan includes evangelism. It includes uh, our nurturing and admonition. And it includes service and ministry to others. Our gifts usually designate the particular area of that impact that the church is supposed to have that we're involved in, though certainly we are affected by all three, the area of evangelism, the area of virtue, uh, of nurture, the area of service and helps to others. The Holy Spirit, we have seen, is our secretary that sets our appointments for the work that we are to do. Nothing happens in our life, incidentally. God has appointed our ways. He has appointed our role, our ability, our resources, our opportunities are part of our gifting and uh, our spiritual walk helps us to be to the point that we are sensitive to the direction that God has given when to speak, when not to speak what we are to do in the kingdom's work each day. We've seen in the Great Commission that we are, it is stated that not go ye therefore, but as you are being taken therefore, you are to make disciples and you are to nurture those as well. The rapture is the event that triggers these actions on these two stages of life. And Jesus certainly is coming again. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, these there are two images that are presented or depicted by the rapture of the church. The first is that Christ is coming as the bridegroom for his bride. And as we study about the the rapture and the coming of Christ, we see how all that fits in. The second is that he's coming as the householder, returning to evaluate the work of the stewards. And I'm not going to spend that time evaluating it here, but we're going to be taken from here to the judgment seat of Christ and we're going to see that played out. The bridegroom coming for his bride is identified for us in a multitude of passages of Scripture. And in our previous study, we saw that Jesus is truly identified as the bridegroom and the church is identified as his bride. Now, when we went through that, we compared the identification of the traditional Jewish wedding that occurred back during the time of Christ with what we find revealed to us in Scripture concerning Christ coming for His bride. We found that there were a number of stages in which the the agreement to marriage and the marriage was consummated that there was a pattern of activity that took place in the Jewish marriage that fits into our study of the rapture and of the church becoming the bride of Christ. 
First of all, there was the arrangement for the marriage. That the father of the groom would meet then with the father of the bride and they, father of the groom would make arrangements for his son to become married to the, the woman. Those arrangements were made by the father and uh, they were carried out through a servant and we see the role of the Holy Spirit in that as well. But uh, we find God sent his son to pay our debt. The, the father would provide an offering, a, a payment, a money payment to the father of the bride. Well, our circumstance was such that we were dead in in spirit and we needed to be born again in order that we might be free and that we might become the bride of Christ. Christ came and paid our debt. Living, he loved us, one songwriter has said. Dying, he saved us. And rising, he justified us freely forever. And one day he's coming, oh glorious day. So the arrangement for the marriage introduces to us in the church age the doctrine of redemption, whereby we have been made free and we are not our own but have been bought with a price. The arrangements for the wedding was followed by a betrothal ceremony. The ancient custom of betrothal uh, helps us then to understand the doctrine of salvation and our relationship and our response to the provision that has been made for us to become the bride of Christ. It was at the betrothal the vows were made. There were no wedding vows at the wedding, at the marriage ceremony. The wedding vows were at the betrothal. And it is at salvation that we become identified then with Christ and as his bride. And uh, that that betrothal uh, usually occurred about a year ahead of the wedding. That during that period of betrothal, then there was some preparations that had to be made. But the marriage was binding as a result of the betrothal ceremony. It was there that they made their commitment and pledged their troth, whatever that word means, it's in formal wedding ceremonies, but they pledged their commitment to each other. It is at salvation that we have that experience and have that sealed uh, with, with Christ and we are committed to him. As a matter of fact, if you wanted to break that uh, marriage contract uh, in that period after the betrothal, it required a bill of divorcement. It was as binding as the marriage. It was actually the binding factor of the marriage. And so it is with salvation. When we receive Christ as Savior, we are uh, then identified eternally secure in him. So while the arrangement for the marriage taught the doctrine of redemption, the betrothal ceremony taught the doctrine of salvation. And then from that time, the, the man 
the groom, the future groom, would go back to his father's house. And the wife, the, the bride-to-be, would remain in her father's house, uh, usually for a year. And uh, during that year, preparation was being made. On the part of the bridegroom, he was to go back to his father's house and he was to build on an addition to the house where he and his bride would live. He would go to prepare a place for her and when he came again to receive her unto himself that where he was, there she might be also. That's all tied into the Jewish wedding tradition of that time. During that period of of time, while he was building on to the house, then the bride was preparing as well for the wedding. There were three steps that were prominent in the bride's preparation during that period period of time. It was suggested that a year lapsed between the time, at least nine months, in order that the bride might prove that she was a virgin and that she was not pregnant uh, during uh, that period of time. There's not a real strong correlation between that and the representation of Christ with the church because our purity is found in Christ. Our holiness is found in Him, in the doctrine of redemption as we harmonize that. But there were two other things that the the bride was to do during that period of time. She was to consecrate herself. Uh, the, the doctrine of sanctification is an important doctrine for, we, for us to understand. The word sanctification means set apart for service. Set apart unto God is how we use it in the Christian uh, cycle, but it means set apart. Uh, into that relationship. With the, with Christians, there are three distinct areas of sanctification that are identified. There is positional sanctification, which means that because we have God's righteousness credited to our account through grace, we are positionally and the Bible describes us as such positionally right now, holy and without blame before God. But if you give me a little while to nose around in your life, I probably might find a departure or two from that perfect holiness and righteousness. Now I say that based upon my own personal experience that I don't want you nosing around in either. But there is that position so that in Ephesians chapter 1, we are set, we are told right now in Ephesians 1, 4, to be holy and without blame before God in Christ. In Christ, we have that positional sanctification. But then the Bible identifies an experiential sanctification. And that is where we become set apart unto God in the actual experience of our life. 
Now, if we truly understood and grasped the concept that we are sojourners, foreigners, not living in our own country, but living alongside the locals to do the king's business, then we would find that process of experiential sanctification move to a different level. We are left alone on earth after salvation for one thing, and that is to live out that design and to manifest and exhibit to others that kind of setting, being set apart unto God for service. And thirdly, we find the area of ultimate sanctification. In the process of understanding the doctrine, we understand that positionally we are holy and without blame. And experientially we need to be working toward that and maturing and growing in that. But ultimately we are going to experience that in total as I, we are changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye to be like Him and to ever be with the Lord. Ultimate sanctification will occur. So the bride was to go through this period before the bridegroom came to get her of developing that commitment and that dedication and that understanding before others that she was committed to him. The third thing that the bride had to do during that period of preparation was to make her wedding garments. And we we find interestingly in scripture the correlation between that and between our lives as Christians anticipating the coming of the bridegroom for us. In Revelation 19 verses 7, 8, and 9 it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, speaking of the bridegroom, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Now we need a little help here <clears throat> in understanding what he is actually saying here because we know that we are righteous only because we are in Christ. And we have God's righteousness accredited to our account. Remember we use the letters G-R-A-C-E to define what grace is. God's righteousness at Christ's expense. We're only acceptable to Him because we have His righteousness. Now the word righteous is made up from the Greek word dikonosuno, which means that which conforms to the specifications of the blueprint. That which conforms to the plan. He was the only one who could conform and he conformed to the plan and gives that to us in faith. We receive that and we are declared holy and righteous. But our righteousness mentioned here is a different usage of the term. As a matter of fact, I struggled with it the first time I discovered uh, the grammatics uh, that were involved here uh, because our wedding garments are made up of our 
own conformity to God's plan that he has given for us to live out that design. Now, in that being the case, it's only as we conform to the Holy Spirit's guidance and direction in our life that we develop that. But in Revelation, we are told for our garment, our wedding garment is the, the righteousness of the saints. It is that which we conform to God's plan as believers that is going to be our manifestation and our adoration. So during that period of time between the betrothal and uh, the wedding then, there was a time of preparation by the bridegroom for a place for them to live, and there was a time of preparation for the bride in preparing for that great and glorious day. And then they didn't meet at the church and have a wedding ceremony, but rather at an appointed time, the father would say to the son, go get your bride, go get your bride. And he would then go and snatch the bride away from her home and take her to his father's home where the purification process would be finalized and uh, the wedding would occur there. No visitors at the wedding. This was done at the father's house and uh, the ceremony itself was not actually a part of the structure of the Jewish marriage at the time of Christ when the scripture was written. But the commitments had already been made at what we identify now as salvation and then there is the consummation of that that occurs. The contract agreed to at the betrothal was binding and so now there is the consummation and without any formal ceremony the wedding, the marriage is consummated there. And it was proper for the bride and the groom to spend some time separated then from uh, the others uh, for that consummation, uh, usually at least a week, uh, depending upon the monetary investment of the father, how long that might last. But uh, we are going to have seven years with Christ as the church being the bride of Christ, seven years with him there before we go to the wedding reception. That's dragging it out a while, but uh, that's according to uh, the plan that God has set up. In that seven years, we're not given a lot of detail as to what goes on there with the, the, the consummation of the marriage occurs, and then the focus is to look downward to the earth and to see that second stage of Bible prophecy as that drama is being played out here upon the earth. The events that occur in Scripture that reveal what is going to be going on focus upon heaven where the orders are given, but upon earth where those orders are carried out. But at the end of that time, then there is 
the reception, the wedding supper. The wedding supper is going to follow by seven years then uh, the consummation of the marriage. I'm not sure how all that timetable of seven years is going to play out because uh, we've not, we're not given any details as to the length of time for the judgment seat and the preparation of the bride and the uh, things that are going to be occurring there. Uh, we'll be looking as from there back down to the earth in uh, this series that is continuing ahead of us then. But at the end of the tribulational period, when the age of Israel has been completed, at the end of that seven years, Christ comes back to this earth and he brings his bride with him. And it is there with the friends of the bridegroom and the bride that the wedding supper is held. So as you read in the gospel accounts and you read about the wedding supper and the marriage supper that is revealed there, you have to put that in the right chronological order to be able to understand how it is played out so that we have that statement uh, concerning the bride having made herself ready and they return. We'll work through that in our series ahead as it fits into the narrative as it relates to life here upon the earth. Not only is the marriage going to be consummated, but in that process, the purification that occurs at the judgment seat of Christ, but at the judgment seat of Christ, there is also the accounting of our stewardship. And we've spent some time in looking at the judgment seat and how that accounting is going to uh, occur, but we're simply going to be evaluated as to what kind of sojourner we were as ambassadors, as stewards, as servants, as bond slaves, as husbandmen, how we lived out the design. That's going to determine the awards that we're going to receive in the way of four crowns that we've already investigated. And not only of those four crowns, we're going to receive commendation for that, but it's at that point we receive our commissions, our role for the millennial kingdom, and our role for the eternal kingdom. So the focus is going to shift, and we're going to look at the drama that occurs here upon the earth. The rapture of the church, and then the judgment seat of Christ, and then the marriage of the Lamb, and then we come back to look at the stage here upon the earth. So while we are honeymooning with Christ in heaven, the stage here on earth is going to to host a number of events that will uh, be all fit in together and harmonized. And although judgment is the focus with tremendous major catastrophes that are going to occur. The drama will feature uh, some conflicts in three distinct areas that stand out in Bible prophecy. I say it's going to be a three-ring circus. There are going to be three uh, stages uh, uh, of events that are going to occur on the stage. The one area is the political arena. 
we're going to see what is going to occur politically in that arena. And perhaps we, if you've not explored that in the past, you'll better understand what's going on today as the jockeying and the position is going on today for those roles as key players in the political arena. The second area is the area of economics. And already you can see how that is gearing up and what it's going to become. Those futuristic ideas uh, are going to become living realities. Maybe that's part of the tragedy that we could describe to the drama that's going to play out. The economical arena. And thirdly, there is going to be a religious arena as there will be a, an attempt. As we start out that period of time, there'll be four world governments that are vying for control or four governments in the world that are vying for control. But then there will be that move for a one world government. And of course, we've heard rumblings of that for some time now, but that will become a reality. And uh, we, we, this is where we're headed with that. Following the rapture of the church on that stage here on earth will be the revival of the Roman Empire. A revival of the old Roman Empire is going to take place. And then there will be the rise of uh, uh, the Middle East di dictator that will rise to power in Israel. Uh, there will be a peace treaty at the beginning of this seven-year period that will be signed by the dictator of the revived Roman Empire with the dictator of Israel. And that is a seven-year agreement. I guess they read the book and they know that seven years and it's all done. So there will be a seven-year peace initiative signed by the revived Roman direct dictator and the dictator, uh, the false prophet of Israel. But three and a half years into that, the dictator of the revived Roman Empire breaks the treaty. But the world church is established during this period of time. And before the one world government is established, the northern kingdom will attack Israel. There'll be then a breaking of that peace treaty that I mentioned. And uh, not only will it affect Israel, it will affect the entire world with the government and the economy uh, and the religious things that are going to take place at that time. We'll find the martyrdom of Christians and of Jews in that first three and a half year period to be dramatic. There'll be catastrophic divine judgments that are poured out upon the world. Uh, there will be a world war. We call it the Battle of Armageddon. It's really a campaign uh, more than an individual ballot. Uh, battle that will break out in the Middle East. And then Christ will come in the second advent and uh, stop the battle. Following that will be the judgment of unbelievers that's identified in Scripture as the baptism of fire. I'm amused at so many Christians running around today 
in the charismatic circles praying for the baptism of fire. Give me the baptism of fire. They're not astute enough in the Word of God to know that fire is always a symbol of judgment. And so they can have it, Lord. Spare me from the fire uh, with that. But there will be the baptism of fire as God, Christ will judge all the world, uh, all of the nations of the earth and Israel. All unbelievers will be put to death and only believers then will go into the uh, millennial reign of Christ. And so Satan will be bound in the bottomless pit at the beginning of that thousand year period and the millennial kingdom will get underway. It will last a thousand years. It will be a fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. All of this fits in to the feast. In Christ's first advent, he fulfilled four of the feasts. On the day of the Passover, he became the Paschal Lamb and died for the sins of the world. Along with that is not only provided our salvation, but our basis for fellowship and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was satisfied with Christ's death on the cross. The resurrection came on the Feast of First Fruits as Christ became the assurance that though we be dead, yet shall we live. And that was on the Feast of First Fruits where Christ became came the first fruits from the dead. And then there was the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, when the church took over the administrative role and Israel was cut off at that point. And that fulfilled the Feast of Pentecost, the end of the primary harvest of the Jews. And so there are three feasts yet to be fulfilled. The Feast of Trumpets will assemble the nations of the earth so that Christ can judge them. The Feast of Atonement will bring about the the judgment and the completion of that judgment uh, and the removal of those. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, the temporary dwelling before moving into the Promised Land. And all of that will then be played out. The final thing will be the Great White Throne Judgment, where... All unbelievers from the beginning of time until the end of time will be sentenced to the lake of fire and brimstone. It's not really a court hearing. It's a an execution of the sentence as they are cast into the lake of fire and brimstone forever. So that's the path that's ahead of us. Already we have seen uh, the groups that are uh, being uh, busy putting the props on the stage, and we're seeing the pushing and shoving among uh, world leaders and religious leaders jockeying for position. Uh, God's already written the script. You put the final amen already on it. They, they, they're not going to rehearse for the parts. That's already been decided, and... They're simply going to be moved into those positions as God brings that judgment finally to pass and this heaven and this earth melt with a fervent heat and a new heaven and a new earth come into existence. So that's where we're headed. 
to look at those things from our vantage point on high as they play out here. But of course, it all begins at salvation. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Our betrothal becomes a reality when we call upon the name of Jesus for salvation. 